Welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Would you say you have good taste in general? Or maybe in a particular area, like music, fashion, or art? It's interesting that we use the word taste to stand in for something like discernment or good judgment. Is that a coincidence? Or is it that tasting food is connected to our judgment of artistic expressions? A related question is whether we should think of food as art, or maybe something else. This week's guest, Carolyn Korsmeyer, has done some of the most influential work on the question of taste as a sense and its relation to aesthetic judgment. We talk about what taste is, why it has historically been devalued compared to senses like sight, and how it connects to artistic judgment. We also talk about replicating ancient meals found in tombs, leaving sticky fingerprints on cookbooks, writing fiction novels as a philosopher, and a lot more in this wide-ranging conversation. I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you'll enjoy listening to it. Uh, Let me read Carolyn's bio. Carolyn Korsmeyer is Research Professor of Philosophy at the University at Buffalo State University of New York. She is the author of a number of articles and books, among them Making Sense of Taste, Food and Philosophy in 1999, Savoring Disgust, The Foul and the Fair in Aesthetics in 2011, and Things in Touch with the Past in 2019. Her forthcoming novel, which we talk about at the top of this interview, is entitled Charlotte's Story. She's a past president of the American Society for Aesthetics. And now, here's my conversation with Carolyn Korsmeyer. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fine, thank you. Good. With all the caveats we have with COVID. I'm That's right. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think this is the first time in my life that that question routinely uh, elicits people laughing <laughs> as a response. It's, it's become a ridiculous question to ask anyone how they're doing now. Yeah. Fine so, doesn't mean what it used to mean. Right. <laughs> yeah. W- within, within certain boundaries, we're, all, we're doing fine, I guess. Uh, it could be worse, I suppose. Okay. I actually had a question um, that I'll, I may drop in. We'll see. Um, when I was reading your bio that you sent along, uh, that you're, you have a novel forthcoming? I do. Can you talk a little bit about that, both the novel itself? I mean, if you feel comfortable uh, sure. talking about like what, what the novel is about talking about that novel, but also the process of writing a novel as a philosopher, if you think those are just, just two facts about you or if they, are, um, if they have a relationship in some way. Yes and no. Um, the first about this particular novel, the title is Charlotte's Story. And it's one of a, I guess it's almost a genre now, a little industry of stories that are extensions of the novels of Jane Austen. The Charlotte in Charlotte's story is Charlotte Lucas, who is a figure in Pride and Prejudice. And I have always thought Charlotte got kind of a tough break being married off to one of the most unappealing men in literature. And it seemed to me that it would be interesting to think about how that kind of a life would extend. So I wrote a story, and I had huge fun doing it, um, that is from Charlotte's perspective where she deals with a marriage that turned out to have been a mistake, but she makes the best of it. And she makes a lot of friends and she and her husband eventually come to um, a great falling out that is then repaired through a mutual problem that I won't give away because it's the, it's the end of the story. But I really enjoy assuming the voice of an author whom I find sympathetic. And I tried to do that with Austin, who's a great comic writer. So I try yeah. to keep it kind of comic as well. Yeah, she's a lot sharper no. and funnier than a lot of people give her credit for uh, when they read it, she's you know, with a modern lens. She's very and she can, be, she can be very amusingly mean. Mm-hmm. And I try mm-hmm. to pursue that with, I don't think, I didn't make anybody particularly nice, but I, I made William Collins a more complex character, I think. Mm-hmm. And I made Anne de Burgh a much more complex character, I think. Anyway, it's in production right now, and I hope it gets read, and I hope people like it. Yeah, interesting. And find it both amusing and um, an interesting way to explore a world of fiction that's both very familiar to people and 
can be read different in different ways. Mm-hmm. In different ways. Now you asked me about being a philosopher who writes fiction. Um, in many respects, I have to take off my philosopher's hat to write more creatively. I have to subdue the analytic part. But I wouldn't say they're entirely different ways of writing because I think philosophy has got to have a kind of arc to it, almost like a narrative, in order for it not to be terribly boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to write philosophy in ways that are readable, even if you're not a professional philosopher. It isn't, it isn't always successful in that respect. But, for example, writing about food potentially reach, reaches a lot of audiences. And now that you mention it, it reminds me that when I first wrote that book, Making Sense of Taste, I don't really think very many philosophers read it. The first group of people who would say something to me about the book, I met in restaurants. And I think it's because the hardback version of the book, which came out first, had a picture on it, and I and people recognized me. Oh, interesting. Um, I had a lot of... A lot of I had two or three waiters come up to me at restaurants and say that say they knew the book, which pleased me enormously because it meant that it was appealing to a much wider audience than a lot of philosophy books would, and I hope they're still reading it. Sure, I mean, I I guess this would count as a controversial statement. I would I would like to think it isn't controversial to say that I mean the dream in writing a philosophy book is that you're reaching outside of academic speaking to one another and actually helping people that don't already think in this way to maybe, you know, stretch out and start to have these, uh, the sort of more philosophical attitude towards something that they already like or care about, like people in the restaurant industry might around food. So, I mean, so one thing, I mean, that makes sense in part that, I mean, I find your writing really readable and very good. Like I assign it to my students in my philosophy of food class, uh, because Mm -hmm. it's so readable. Um, and so I can imagine that that stretches into fiction, too. If you're good at writing and telling a story with something that doesn't even have a narrative push, surely it's easier if you have a narrative push to keep people engaged. Um, but also, I'm wondering, you know, the, the way of philosophers thinking about things of and coming sort of at questions from a position of wanting to get underneath what people are saying into the actual concepts that are being used and the way that things are connecting with one another. Do you find that that is helpful at all? I mean, you say that in some ways you have to turn off the analytical sort of part of your brain to do that part of uh, to do that sort of fictional writing. Do you think there's Do you think there's any tools of like doing philosophy that helps you when you're writing fiction, or is it, um, or or do they maybe they fight against each other? They run parallel. I don't think they fight against each other, but um, a lot of what I like to do when I write non-philosophy is implicit and if you're too implicit in philosophy you leave out you leave out the details of argument so um for example in conversation you can you can put a dialogue into a a narrative where something is being said that is not explicit that i don't think works terribly well if you're doing philosophy you need to pursue things further and guard against being misunderstood um, which is quite easy to do when you're making a point that someone maybe is going to immediately want to disagree with, because right. what philosophers like to do. It's kind of our stock and trade, find a counter-argument. So um, they're, they're different. I don't think they're incompatible. Iris Murdoch was, you know, the, the Iris Murdoch, the philosopher, who's also a novelist, was yeah. a novelist. I had him in some place probably on an unreadable videotape now, an interview that she did where she said to the interviewer that she thought they were entirely separate enterprises. Yeah, I've heard her say that. She said that. You've heard her say that? Yeah. But I, 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 don't, because, know if it's, I, I don't know how true it is. So I'm interested in getting perspective from other uh, people who have a foot well, in the Well, I'm curious about it because it seems to me, first of all, that her novels are often sort of stuck in a quagmire of philosophical discussion among the protagonists and that her uh, philosophy is beautifully written 
I prefer the philosophy to the fiction in that case. But it seems to me that, in fact, she's doing something similar often in both kinds of writing. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I mean, I don't want to tell her her business, but uh, like if I read um, Under the Net or something, it seems like the the degree to which that's being informed by some of her thoughts about love and about connection with other people. I mean, to me, they seem like a piece. But uh, so uh, as, as I was saying uh, to you before, uh, so I asked for you to come on and I appreciate you agreeing to do this for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is I'm very interested in this conversation about taste. So, I mean, you work in aesthetics among other sorts of areas and taste is in, in one sense, a really big part of the conversation of aesthetics, but in another way, a different concept of taste has been traditionally very minimalized, uh, which you've written about. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I'll give you a long answer because Great. it's actually a pretty complicated issue. Um, as you mentioned, in the field of aesthetics, which by that name is relatively modern, uh, people talked about art and about beauty and so forth since philosophers talked about anything or since probably anybody talked about anything. But the field of aesthetics as a distinct philosophical set of investigations is usually dated to the early 18th century in Europe, um, usually in Germany, France, England, Italy. Um, and there's an enormous amount of writing about the nature of beauty, which is very influenced by the fact that very few people any longer are subscribing to the idea that beauty names an objective quality. It's not like, well, red is objective in one sense and not in another sense, but it's not like solidity or square. Uh, and it isn't even really like red. It seems to be naming a response that is highly um, subjective in that dicey sense that it requires a human reaction, but it doesn't mean that it's just idiosyncratic to the individual. So philosophers who decided they needed to talk about beauty in that respect found themselves facing a tricky question. How do we talk about this phenomenon that appears to be out in the world, nature, for example, a beautiful sunset, a beautiful flower, and I'm gonna stick with beauty for a moment, though it's by no means the only aesthetic property to talk about. How do we talk about beauty, recognizing that it isn't really naming a, an objective quality that would be there if we didn't observe it, but at the same time, not make it something like, ouch, I banged my thumb with a hammer. In other words, not make it something that's just me at that moment because of something that happened. Mm -hmm. um, and the concept of taste, seemed ready-made. It doesn't, it, it is not rooted in the 18th century. There's earlier literature that begins to talk about um, discerning perception in terms of taste. And the theories that I'm most familiar with are European, but you actually find it in multiple other cultures as well. But let's stick with the, the Western philosophical tradition, because that's the one that I, I know something about. Um, why is taste so uh, handy. Well, because say you're eating chocolate, okay, chocolate names a substance, but the sensation of chocolate is something that requires you to detect when you are exposed to chocolate in the proper way, namely you're eating it. Um, do we all taste the same thing with chocolate? Kind of yes, kind of no. Some people love it, some people not so sure about it. Um, but the thing about taste also is that it's possible to develop it very far. Um, taste for chocolate might be kind of immediate because people tend to like sugar and if it's sweet chocolate, not, not bitter chocolate. Uh, taste for sweetness is apparently universal in mammals from a very early age. So sweetness is very quickly detected. But think about the first time you ever tasted coffee. It was probably, how can anybody want to drink this stuff? <laughs> but then you drink a little more, you develop a sense of good coffee, instant isn't as good as fresh roasted coffee. Um, 
And your ability to detect more and more in the um, cup of coffee begins to bloom. Coffee is relatively complex. Wine is something that people have often talked about because it's a very sophisticated kind of flavor combination. Um, fancy gourmet dishes are that way, but so are very ordinary things like bread or tea or rice. There are many qualities of these things that you learn to detect. So you can refine taste. And so taste becomes a very handy model for thinking about learning to detect qualities out there in the world that require a response to bloom, if you will, to really come into being. Um, so taste works that way with all sorts of people, Voltaire, Hume, uh, Kant. It's, it's that uh, sense that becomes the foundational model. I'm using model right now rather than metaphor. It becomes the foundational model for thinking about detecting qualities out in the world that elicit a certain kind of response. So beauty is analogous to those qualities out in the world. They are eliciting a kind of response. What is the response? At that particular period of time, and this becomes a very complicated issue, it's considered to be the best candidate for what that response is, is a type of pleasure. So it's like yum to the chocolate, only it's um, got a lot of variations because yum is only one. It could be interesting, right. it could be, it could be uh, you know, complex or novel. So it's, it's maybe a kind of pleasure. Now here's where taste as a sense starts to be relegated to the metaphor rather than the literal sense of taste because um, beauty is not seen as a quality in any, in any of its forms. That is the satisfaction of a desire. And pleasure was seen as coming about when some kind of desire is satisfied. And desire tended to be modeled on bodily desires. Hunger, um, being cold, um, sexual desire. So beauty was considered kind of emphatically just not to be in that category. The, the, the term that comes later in the, as the theory develops is it's, it's a kind of disinterested pleasure. That's Kant's terms and it becomes widely used. Disinterested doesn't mean you have no interest in it, obviously. You're very engaged. It means it's not satisfying a desire. It's another kind of pleasure. Mm -hmm. Because eating seems to be so rooted in the body and in the body's needs, literal taste falls away from aesthetic taste and becomes the metaphor rather than an example. That's, that's the short version, although it took a long time to say it, that's actually the short version. <laughs> there are philosophers, Hume is the most famous, who in the mid-18th century actually use um, eating and drinking as a great model for discerning qualities in art. Others said, look, that's, that's much too uh, grounded in its body, the body and its needs. So it's got to be something a little more metaphorical. That's fantastic. And in fact, I can throw in uh, the show notes a link to Hume writing on taste. I think it's uh, actually quite interesting for people who haven't taken a look at it before um, to hear His what he has to say. His essay on the standard of taste is yeah. what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah it's and really good. And there's volumes written about it, so mm -hmm. you'll so, never look to one. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask, um, you know, given that it, taste is this useful way of thinking, a model for thinking like that. Why do you think as a sense, like as a bodily sense, it's been sort of deprecated in philosophy historically versus things like say vision? Uh-huh, okay. Um, for parallel reasons, because, and it's again, it's the old mind-body split, but um, there are reasons other than just uh, sort of prudishness, why, why it, it gets tough not to separate the senses according to bodily senses and, well, they're actually considered distance senses, distal senses, distance, or proximal senses, those that require bodily sensation. If you think about the five standard senses, and this the theory develops with the five standard senses in mind, rather than, say, proprioception or 
things like that. Balance, right, ba balance or, or balance or, or detecting heat within your own body, things like that. Um, yeah. So, but the two senses, um, vision and hearing, as a rule, don't have a bodily sensation attached to them. If they can, a very loud noise can hurt your ear, a piercing light kind of makes your eyes water. But just looking at something, just listening to something, you don't have a physical change in the body, a detectable one. I think there are some, obviously, in the brain. Once we get the brain into things, the mind-body distinction becomes pretty tough. <laughs> but um, but the, the vision and hearing operate at a distance from their objects, sometimes at a very great distance from their objects. Touch and taste require actual bodily contact. Smell is kind of in between. Um, because if, you, if something is really pressing up into your nose, I don't think you smell it. It needs to be at some, it needs to be vaporized in order for those molecules to enter the, the nose. Um, but those are all sensations. And they entangle uh, the object of perception with a bodily response more obviously than do hearing and vision, which is why hearing and vision were considered and still are in many uh, theories, uh, aesthetic senses, as opposed to touch, smell, and taste, which are considered non-aesthetic senses because they're bodily senses. Now, I got interested in the subject um, you were referring to a book that I wrote mm -hmm. called Making Sense of Taste. And I got interested in it quite some time ago. The book is, is, has been out for 20 years. Because after many years of teaching the aesthetic, non-aesthetic distinction, and Hume and Kant, and the sort of standard people in the history of philosophy, it finally occurred to me to think, I wonder why exactly <laughs> taste is so taken away here yeah. because it is such a handy model and sometimes it really seems to come very close to what we talk about with an aesthetic response um surprise pleasure etc so i went back to looking at the history of philosophy and decided that taste was getting a very bad rap and tried to defend it on aesthetic grounds and that's what the subject of that book was by the way i should clarify something one of the reasons that taste is sometimes considered the simplest, most primitive sense, some people put it, the, if, there, there's, if there's a hierarchy of senses, they go vision, hearing, touch, smell, taste, or maybe vision, hearing, taste, smell, touch. It depends exactly what it is you're measuring. Yeah. But sometimes people think of taste and they think, oh, taste doesn't do very much. Smell does all the work in taste. But in fact, when anybody thinking about taste, Brio um, Savarin or Plato, they mean the combination of smell and the taste sensations because full flavor only develops with both smell and taste in the works. And you pretty much need touch there too in sure. order to have anything in your mouth. So when I'm saying taste here, I don't mean taste as opposed to smell. Yeah. I mean taste in its large sense. Anyway, I set out to defend taste and decided that there were lots of ways that it qualifies as an aesthetic sense, not um, necessarily because the objects of taste are works of art, because the objects of all sorts of aesthetic encounters are not works of art, but in other respects. Um, well, let's, let's uh, talk about that if we can. So... Uh, yeah, what do you think about that question of whether or not food can be art? Because traditionally, people have thought that it definitely isn't for various reasons, which maybe you can get into. Um, but the question becomes complicated. I mean, obviously, one reason it becomes complicated is we need some sort of strong working definition of what art means. But uh, yeah, it seems that it might at least be a stronger candidate than people have historically thought it would be. In this book, Making Sense of Taste, I made the case that that was not a good question to take, mm -hmm. right. to taste. And there are more and more people who want to argue that food and drink, depending what kind of food and drink, does qualify as, as, as art. It depends very much on what sense of art you're using, as, as you mentioned. 
there's no doubt that there is artistry in preparing food. Um, I think that a lot of the question hinges on whether you think it's better to be a work of art than to be a meal. Mm-hmm. And I happen to think it's just as good to be a meal. <laughs> <laughs> These things are obviously going to vary depending on what you have in mind. But when I make the case that it's, it's not very helpful to consider food, is it or is it not art, if you mean the fine art tradition. Now, there's a, there's a, a quote that I like from an 18th century chef named Karem, who said, the fine arts are five in number, painting, sculpture, music, poetry, architecture, and the greatest of the latter is pastry. <laughs> um, the importance of what we eat and drink so far exceeds art that it doesn't really matter to me whether or not we consider it art. Right. Because um, it's, you know, it's a good meal. It's a drink. It's, it's, it's wine. It has an artistry. It certainly has an artistry. I think I prefer the notion of artistry mm-hmm. to the notion of art because art gets freighted with what goes on in special venues like galleries. The real problem with considering food and art has to do with the restrictions on the traditional notion of fine art. The traditional notion of fine art, and by traditional, I mean kind of the, the modernist version that I suppose that you could date from the 18th through the early 20th century. I'm not really sure about the dates, mm-hmm. but in its um, strictest parameters, fine art is supposed to be an art of contemplation that does not have any particular practical purpose. Obviously, lots of things that we consider very valuable works of art are omitted from that kind of a definition. But if you take that seriously, and if you take the aesthetic senses that we talked about before seriously, namely eyes and ears, then food just doesn't fit. But is that notion of fine art is very much passing from the scene among contemporary artists, many of whom deliberately violate those parameters. And you find now within standard fine art venues, such as galleries and museums, works that include food, things that you smell, things that you touch. And therefore, to say food can't be art because it can't be fine art, kind of a dated thing to say. Um, I still think there's a great deal of complexity involved in considering food as art, especially because, as we talked about before, food has its virtues that don't have to conform to the virtues of art. But I did want to add the fact that the uh, almost pro forma restriction that would eliminate objects that are taken in with the bodily senses is kind of passe in the world of in the world of contemporary art with regard to the uh, works that are made as art that are also foodstuffs i'm only familiar with some of them sometimes they're quite interesting um but they're often not very edible janine antoni for example has a famous piece it's called lick and lather made by chocolate with chocolate and um soap and and they're really interesting but they are also interesting as a comment on the world of fine art, less interesting as something you want to eat or the lather is soap, but um, they are interesting. So yes, it has it has some sometimes very expressive purposes. Yeah, yeah, it does feel like that the question is trading on a cultural valuing of fine art as being good. And so people who are saying that food is art, what they're trying to say is that food should be, I don't know, respected or viewed with, a, with the same sorts of importance that we put on what we think of as fine art traditionally. But so, so you have to already have that sort of hierarchy built in just to then argue that food ought to belong to that better class. I, I think so. I think so. Although I have to say that there certainly are um, cooking projects that wouldn't make a lot of sense unless you really wanted them to be super special. Mm-hmm. They're too time consuming or too elaborate or too expensive. 
But I don't think that, and I think those are really interesting, and, and I like them, but I don't think that that's the pinnacle of food's importance. What interests me most probably is the cultural role of food in ritual and ceremony and tradition. Um, every culture that I know of, which of course is pretty limited, but an awful <laughs> lot of cultures, incorporate eating into very important rituals, whether it's funerals, feasts, religious celebrations, birthdays, weddings, you name it. There's something to eat or something to drink or to refrain from. Because not eating, fasting, restricting what you eat becomes part of that much larger meaning, whether you're talking about um, a fast day within a religious tradition or celebrating a new year with special sweets the way um, several cultures do. And using flavors, um, special foods in those situations demonstrates the real depth of significance for food and eating and conviviality. Yeah, why do you think that is, that this is so commonplace in human culture, that, that specific foods would be tied to specific times uh, of the year or specific events in people's lives uh, in that way? Oh, that's an interesting question, and I can only speculate. Um, I, the, the, the real answer is I don't know, but here are some ideas. Sure. Why would we, for example, celebrate a new year with something sweet? Uh, that's done in the Jewish tradition with Rosh Hashanah, you eat honey. It's, I don't know what the, I, I don't know enough about um, India to know exactly what the festival of Diwali is, but sweets are important there. Mm-hmm. Sweet. I think that particular flavor, sweetness, goes back to the notion that sweetness is universally loved. Not in the same form. You might want honey, you might want uh, white sugar or molasses. A sweetness comes in many, many forms. But the, the, the sweetness is sort of fun, uplifting, hopeful. It's a sign of ripeness if you have fruits. So there's something, there's a kind of natural symbolism with that particular flavor, as opposed to bitterness, which also has a natural symbolism. We're less drawn to it. We might incorporate it into a ritual. That's, that's one possibility. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to think that there might be some kind of, I mean, I mean people talk about um, synesthesia as sort of an idiosyncratic thing that you link certain senses to each other. But, you know, there's an extent to which we are all synesthetic and there's an extent to which it's pretty universally shared which ones are connected to each other. Yes, yes, I think so. The other thing is I think that uh, the fact is we have to eat. I mean, that's one of the things that people think will will invoke to disqualify food from the world of art, because art is supposed to be timeless and um, enduring, and you know, you, you, you eat something and it's gone. Um, or it rots if you don't eat it in time. But we need to eat. And sometimes rituals ex- take place over an extended period of time. So to eat within that gives meaning to what you're doing together. Uh, and the phenomenon of a ceremony or a ritual is something that is communal. And one of the things that we do together is consume. We eat, we drink. Um, and so that's something else that I think makes food ready-made, food and drink, ready-made for incorporating into social activity. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a different aspect entirely, that this idea of uh, being communal with the, with the things we do. I mean, it's not just in like actual action during ceremonies or important holiday times, but also even in our language. I mean, people talk about breaking bread together, about sitting down at the same table in most languages. I mean, this idea that if I eat with you, then there's an extent to which I must trust you. There's an extent to which I know you. If I've seen, if we've eaten together and shared food, that, uh, you know, is, I think, deeply embedded in who we are. Yes, and and you mentioned something there that I think is, it it sounds like a very ancient um, aspect of eating together, and that is trust. Because a lot of things you can eat will poison you. Mm-hmm. But if you eat things together, you share the same uh, beings, then you are, you're, you're sharing, you're, you're trusting. 
I believe it's the case that the word companion comes from the word meaning bread, breaking bread together with bread. I think that's the case. Interesting. I have to look it up before you put that up. <laughs> right. We'll double check. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, so yeah, so circling back to what you were saying about taste broadly understood to incorporate smell and a little bit, you know, the texture of things too. I mean, I mean, and you mentioned Briar Savarin. So then well, in that case, I think, well, vision also, if you're thinking about taste yeah. in a very broad sense, right? And hearing, like all of the senses are involved yeah. in experiencing food. Absolutely. This is true. And in fact, it, it's very... Uh, trendy right now to say you, you begin eating with your eyes. Mm -hmm. But in fact, if you look at old cookbooks, you find old cookbooks beginning that way, you know, present things beautifully so that people will want to eat them. And oh, by the way, there's been some really interesting research done about the um, influence over flavor perception of things like sound that you wouldn't think would be affecting what you eat at all, but apparently it does. There's a, a, a psychologist in Oxford named Charles Spence, who's done some really interesting studies with a team of researchers um, that indicate that people regularly associate certain kinds of sounds with certain kinds of flavors. And when they hear those sounds, the flavors appear to be more intense. My favorite is um, people on airplanes usually order Bloody Marys. And it seems to be the sounds of jet engines that stimulate the desire for umami flavored sort of this interesting with tomato juice i would imagine because i would imagine like the sound of uh cracking or crisp crunching having some kind of effect on how we how we experience bread or potato chips or popcorn or Absolutely. whatever but um, the fact that it's broader than that is very interesting yes i mean my own father um relatively late in his life actually lost the sensation of taste uh with oh. his tongue because of um, the, medic the medication he was taking and some heart problems and things. Um, and uh, his youngest child, my uh, sister, said, well, why are you eating fancy foods? Like, you should just eat the same, like, you know, if I had lost my sense of taste, I would just eat, like, the same meal every day. But, of course, that's not what he did. Because even though he couldn't technically taste it, so he was missing some element of it, you know, I asked him about it. He said it was quite interesting because he could still smell, he could still see it and hear it. He had all of these other, he could feel it in his mouth. And so it felt like one part of it was missing, but it was hard to even put his finger on what was missing. Like he still very much could tell what he was eating and had that food experience. Uh -huh. Did he lose his sense of smell as well? Uh, his sense of smell was reduced, but not lost. Was, but like truly on his tongue, you know, if his eyes were closed and you placed something on his tongue, you know, he, was, he wasn't able to identify it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, um, you know, you mentioned uh, old cookbooks and you were saying uh, before we started recording that you've been doing some work on recipes. I'd be really interested to hear uh, what you've been thinking about that. Uh, okay. The work that I myself was doing on recipes was a little indirect because I'm really interested in the question of whether we can recreate meals from the distant past. Ooh, interesting. Right. And I meant really distant past. So I was working on um, a kind of archaeology of flavor of which there have been some, some very interesting uh, experiments because these days, archaeologists, if they find in, say, ancient tombs, if they find like wine vessels or plates, bowls that contained um, the last feast of a funeral, they can now analyze the molecular structure of the residue and determine kind of what people ate. That's fascinating. And there, it, it really is fascinating. And um, there have been several attempts to recreate the meals of the past, which raises that question. Does that mean that we're tasting the same things that people did 2,700 years ago or something like that? What does same mean? Even if we're eating, say, the same substance, is it now the same? Would it be recognizable? from a very long time ago. After all, we've hybridized so many things. Mm -hmm. um, we we uh, develop types of crops. We breed animals so that they taste a certain way. So is it really the same? Would we enjoy it if, it were, if we were somehow transported back into the past? Which I think is a really tricky uh, issue. Sure. And, not easy to answer without a lot of qualification. Yeah, I mean, that's so that's, that that's one kind of question. You know, like, I mean, I mean, 
Darwin, famously, when he was first introducing the idea of natural selection, uh, said that apples and oranges taste better now than they did hundreds of years ago. And his argument for that was that even today, we see farmers taking the best and sweetest fruits and propagating those. And so if you trace that backwards, then, you know, you backcast, it must be the case that several hundred years ago, apples and oranges were worse than they are now. And so, so that's one element that things might literally be gone, right? But another question that springs to mind when you say that is even if we could make food that if you somehow sent it back in a time machine, those people uh, would say, yes, this, this is that meal, this tastes exactly identical. It still might be the case that us eating it is different, right? It doesn't, it's not the same meal for us because it doesn't hold the same contextual meanings. It doesn't have the same symbolic meanings. It doesn't compare to other tastes we've had. So it's not as sweet as other things we've eaten. So I would think that like the experience, the, the, the total consummatory experience of that meal might be uh, unreproducible. It might be, especially if you're focusing on the sensations that you have and the meanings. And there, I think you're, you're quite right. But the other thing I wanted to say about recipes is this. Um, like many people, I've got a, several generations of recipe books in my, mm. in my um, kitchen. And I really love looking at them, although I rarely cook. I'm very much from them. I'm more in theory than practice when it comes to food. <laughs> but I've got some cookbooks that I know have my great-grandmother's writing in them. And I just love it because you can see the transmission of teaching about how you bake or how you um, how you prepare things. And another thing is you see the stains from old cooking, uh, you know, pages stuck together because somebody dropped the molasses on them. And this has a resonance and a depth that I find very meaningful. And like many people now, if I want a quick recipe for something, I Google it up and take it off the computer mm. so I don't have the stained piece of paper that I will pass on to my children. But sometimes I go back to those old cookbooks and open them up, including the newer ones that I bought myself, so that I will have the paper, the physical recipe, as opposed to the digital recipe, which is sentimental, I think. But it, it is an opportunity to browse back and see what was eaten even in the recent past, because after mm -hmm. all, your grandparents or your great-grandparents, that's not so long ago in terms of history. But you also see, you can't imagine why they bothered. Um, <laughs> like I, I, one of the old cookbooks I have tells me how to boil a frog. I'm not ever going to boil a frog, and it's kind of disgusting to think of it. But, um, but it was a very useful piece of information not so long ago. So just imagine if you have to exercised your, your um, sort of extrapolation and, and imagination to be your great-grandmother, what it would be like to be someone 2,000 years ago. It's Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the original Joy of Cooking had instructions for how to cook squirrel, if I'm not mistaken. So, it's, so it, it, I've got one of the originals, right? Yeah, so it's not that long You're ago, for really sure. Together. <laughs> um, yeah, my, a cousin of mine actually does book restoration and preservation. Mm -hmm. And she says that the, I mean, the most common things that are sent to her, you know, if you had to guess, my guess would be the Bible, right? Some family Bible. And that's certainly very common, but the most common are cookbooks because those are the ones that they want. They want that book preserved. They don't want to get another copy of the book. They want the one that has their great grandmother's handwriting in it, that, that has a coffee ring in it from somebody setting yes. a coffee cup. And so the, the work of preserving that book for her is a real challenge because you're, okay. you have to preserve it and all of its flaws because that's, that, that is what that item is for them. That's really interesting. You know, what that's invoking is, is a bunch of senses, including touch, because you can hold in your hands the very book that your grandmother, your great-grandmother, or some, or some neighbor, because probably many of those books have interleaved with them recipes from friends, and you have no idea who they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, have some, we have some recipes in my family. We have some recipes in my family that say, you know, like Susan's, pickles. And you're like, well, who's Susan? <laughs> exactly. Right. But by touch, I don't mean the sensation of touch. I mean the, the contact. Yeah, for sure. And so, so there's, there's that element of recipes being this sort of heirloom, right? This thing that is a transmission, intergenerational transmission, like the 
the physical thing, as you're saying. Uh, in fact, my wife and I have some uh, internet recipes that we've printed out, and that piece of paper becomes increasingly important as it gets older. Uh, so I definitely recognize that. So that's true. But then also, um, you know, even ignoring the physical medium and that artifact, the recipe itself, like the steps, the assumptions that it has, I mean, the way the cook that recipes used to be written has changed a lot over time. Very much. And so that, that itself is also a form of transmission that's quite interesting. I mean, you know, we talk about how, you know, measurements weren't as good or weren't as accurate in the past for recipes. They would say something like a little or a handful or a sprinkle. Um, but there's other ways, too, that recipes have changed over time. Yes, and the quantities that people used to cook with is are also quite interesting because you can tell that some of those recipes were made for enormous families <laughs> or maybe made to distribute beyond the family. Sure. And then there's a period where almost everything requires a can of cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> yeah, it's that's see that's another thing too is you uh, you see you can watch these explosions like uh, oh look baking soda was invented clearly at a certain time because all of a sudden quick breads are have become you know the the, the new thing which is why it was written down so much because it was a new idea um, mm -hmm. often coming off the back of boxes you know like I know that tres leches cake which is very popular in uh, Mexican-American communities down here where I live in South Texas, mm -hmm. uh, it, I, I believe this is right. This is another one that I, I'm, I'm going to check before I put this up, but I'm 80 to 90% sure that it was originally a recipe from the back of the can of condensed milk, but oh, then has, yeah, that, that was, it was developed by the people who were trying to sell this mm -hmm. condensed milk, but it became adopted into Mexican-American culture and to the extent that um, people you know, it's it's now a family recipe, right? It's the one that you made with your grandma. The, but it's I. But there's a lot more fidelity between families for that recipe than other ones because that was the origin, rather than it being an origin another hundred years in the past. Yeah. yeah, I believe it's the case that the Toll House cookie recipe. There was a Toll House, but the one that everybody uses that I think is the best recipe for chocolate chip cookies comes on the back of the. I think it's the Nestle's um, semi-sweet chocolate bits. That's interesting. <laughs> they should Nestle should file some sort of <laughs> some sort of suit, which actually well, I'm not sure they invented it, but I think they distributed it. Sure, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Well, you know, the idea of uh, recipes as I mean intellectual property or something that is right. owned, um, you know, is very new. You know, the uh, even today it's sort of the wild west. Like you know, there are cookbooks where people have written down some recipe that they came up with, and you can find virtually any recipe from any cookbook online because people will put them up and say, this is from this book and just print them. And it's becoming an open question whether or not that's something protected. But since historically it has always been something that travels and gets reimagined and reinvented. But there is a period of history and I couldn't tell you when, when um, particularly women would keep a recipe because it was a sort of social currency. Interesting. And they wouldn't disclose it. And I'm sure that was not universal. And I don't even know how widespread it was. Sure. And I mean, certainly, you know, even or famous chefs might have something that they, they keep a particular exactly. technique secret just to their own, you know, restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know that like the different sauces, the French sauces, you know, the mother sauce and, all, you know, the, the, the however many that is, uh, traditional sauces of France that was written down. Having that written down was the innovation. Those sauces had been... Mm -hmm traded or been kept secret or people had different versions, you know, among chefs in France for, you know, a century or more before that. That getting back to the question of recreating ancient dishes or even old dishes, they don't have to be super ancient. One of the things about cooking is that it's very opportunistic. If a recipe calls for one thing and you don't have it, you choose something that's kind of like it. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it, that's not really a violation. That's what cooking is. You take what you've got and you make what you can and you adjust it if it didn't work. And if it worked better that way, you, you go with it. So even things that go by the same name often have tremendous variations in it. Yeah, which part are you, being, are you having fidelity with? So a conversation I was having with uh, Lisa Heldke earlier uh, in an earlier episode, we were talking about how, like, say, 
street food from Asia, when it comes to the United States, if you try to get exactly the ingredients that are used in Thailand or China or wherever, that's going to be a huge ask, right? It's going to be very difficult. You'll have to import it or find a specialty grocery store in order to find exactly that. And in one sense, that is being true to that recipe, to have an authentic you know, in scare quotes with a bunch of question marks all around it, experience to have that food. But on the other hand, uh, that food has, in Thailand or China, is use the things around you, right? Like the sort of meta recipe is use the ingredients that are common here. Use the vegetables that are everywhere and growing in your backyard. Use the most common sources of protein that are around you. And so so being true to that meta recipe is to violate the the ingredients list of the immediate recipe and just find the vegetables or proteins that are near you, which is where you get things like broccoli beef uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. There's no broccoli in China, not the way we think of as broccoli. And so Mm -hmm. is that inaccurate to Chinese food or is that actually quite accurate because it is a very common green brassica that you can find at the grocery store, which is what it's standing in for. Right. That's interesting. And it reminds me that I um, one time had a graduate student from Korea who invited me over to dinner and she cooked something quite delicious. I don't remember what it was, but she said that she used um, Coca-Cola, that it was the best substitute for whatever it was she couldn't get here. Right. And she kind of liked it better. Yeah. So, so like, which is the recipe, right? Is the recipe the ingredients list and the steps you would combine them, or is, the, or is the recipe, like, the instructions of, you know, go forth and find a protein, go forth and find a vegetable, and prepare them in this way? Yeah, right. I ask people to bring recipes to... Uh, the show, partly because I think it's an interesting way into to learning about someone, and also because I think there's a kind of connection that forms when we share food with one another. I mean, you've written about yeah. things like that, that it marks an occasion as special and that it can help us um, feel in communion. We're literally sitting at the table with somebody. We can't do that. I mean, I'd love it if you could mail food to everyone who listens to the podcast, but as sort of a virtual version, um, I think sharing a recipe can also be quite um, special. So I'd like to talk, if you have a minute, about the recipe that you brought for us today. Sure. I sent you a recipe for gingerbread that came out of a cookbook written by... um, Marjorie Rawlings, who I think is better known as an author of The Yearling, which was a quite a popular story oh, yeah. Yeah, years yeah. ago. Um, the date I have penciled onto my piece of paper is 1942. This is a recipe that was sent to me by a friend, who actually was a former graduate student. And I sent you as a, a scan of my page, which I don't suppose you'll have in the podcast. You'll just write out the recipe. Um, because... Well, first of all, it was easy. But secondly, it's all written and stained, mm-hmm. and I've got some notes on it, and therefore it matches the kind of thing we were talking about with recipe books, that the physical book, the physical pages that are sent, passed down through generations, literally have the mark on it of the previous cooks. Sometimes it's their handwriting. Sometimes it's their fingerprints when they turn a page with syrup or something on their, on their fingers. And I like that about this piece. The other thing, though, is that the recipe itself is incredibly easy and very reliable. I'm not a very adventuresome cook, but I do like to bake. And if you've done any baking, you'll know that baking is often quite chancy. Mm-hmm. Pies, in particular, are, are the victims of weather. I would say one pie crust in five that I make is satisfactory. And sometimes it's raining or it's too humid. Mm-hmm. Or I just made a mistake, which is probably the case most of the time. This particular recipe, I can recommend to anybody who's following your podcast, is almost foolproof. And it's delicious. So I like that about it. It's very simple. But the other thing that I mentioned with regard to gingerbread is that if you think about the what we call gingerbread today, you also come to realize that it's a very new version of a very old recipe. Um, And I consulted for that a book called The Diner's Dictionary, Food and Drink from A to Z by John A-Y-T-O. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if people want to click through and find it. The Diner's Dictionary, Food and Drink from A to Z by John A-Y-T-O. The reason I mention it, it's, it's quite a fun book. But I looked up gingerbread because I was very curious 
why it's called gingerbread. Because you'll notice on that recipe that there's only a teaspoonful of ginger in it. Right. Many, yeah. many other ingredients. So you could as easily call it you could as easily call it molasses bread as anything, or sugar exactly, bread. Because that's, I think, the big contributor of the flavor. But gingerbread, the term that we have is gingerbread, was originally in the 13th century, uh, a word borrowed from the old French, which meant preserved ginger. But it went through many iterations, including um, uh, the word originally, I don't know how you would have said it in old French, but it looks like a gingerbra, and it, it uh, bread becomes, bra becomes bread. And um, over the years, a recipe for preserving ginger became a recipe to use ginger to preserve other things. And now it's just a small ingredient in our sweet cake, what we call gingerbread. And I think that's kind of neat. Because it shows that what we eat has deep history. And we usually don't know much about it because things change and we're busy eating. But if you study food, the um, evolution of what we eat is really quite fascinating. And there's another linkage. Because not only are you linking to one another when you share food. I sometimes give gingerbread cakes away to people at Christmas as gifts. But also, we are linked with the past. We're linked with our immediate ancestors or grandparents maybe, but also just with people who share a history and a cuisine with us. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's a very material kind of connection. And also, I mean, the thing I love about food and why I decided to do a podcast on this of the several research interests I have is because food is such a great boundary object. I mean, people, if they love gingerbread, if they love that taste and they have personal associations of it with Christmas or whatever, they're much more likely to be engaged with talking about the history of uh, the food, talking about, uh, you know, the way that recipes move through time. I mean, like all of those kinds of sort of academic, interesting conversations to me about history and philosophy are very grounded for people if it's about something that they already care about and already love. And food is a great way to kind of find that. I agree with that. Um, And one of the ways that I enjoy teaching is to start with something like that, that people are already very familiar with and therefore already have views on. So discussion is lively. It's got a place to begin because people already have an idea. They don't have to sort through uh, a treatise on something rather that was perhaps a bit tedious or more difficult. Yeah, not to poke fun at colleagues, but I, I, I always prefer to have a class oriented around things like that than beginning a class by asking if they think free will is you know, determinative or, or truly free or something. Yes, right. I once had a, this is not food, but it, well, it is related to food, to tell you the truth. It's, it's about disgust. Um, I once taught a, an intensive week-long course in Finland at, um, in Helsinki. And I happened to run into someone from Sweden who had just done a similar course. And he said, you know, you're not going to find that your students talk much. You're going to, this is, you're on your own. They're not going to talk. And so I went into a class of students and thought, well, they're going to talk. And I began by saying, what's the most disgusting food you know of? And it was one of the things that we did get them talking. It was quite interesting. But you often assume that your native cuisine is good. And disgusting foods are the things that other people eat. Mm -hmm. But in Finland, everybody's disgusting food was some fish dish that their great-grandparents had passed down. And there was a lot of discussion among themselves because they couldn't figure out how to translate it into English, even though their English was excellent. Um, And that broke the ice and gave us a lot to talk about. Well, that's really interesting because, I mean, you've done a lot of work on disgust. You know this uh, better than I do, that... uh, one thing that disgust does, uh, particularly around food, but really anything, is police cultural boundaries, right? People like us like this, and people like us don't like that. I mean, it can be a shibboleth for cultural belonging. And so if they are picking things that are disgusting, that are brought from their grandparents' generation, I wonder if it's because they feel like they're in a very different kind of world maybe than their grandparents were. Because, I mean, disgust is such a policing boundary kind of uh, feature. 
that was exactly why I found it so curious that they had this, this response. I think in that case, um, it's not that they rejected their grandmother's cooking altogether, but um, some of the northern countries have traditions of preserving fish under emergency circumstances, mm. including letting it rot a little bit to um, cleanse it of microbes, but also preserve it. And it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. Um, maybe something, it also may be a cultivated taste that sure. they just hadn't gotten to yet. Yeah. I don't know. I, I wasn't certain. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly it's true. Like if you ask young people in any country, they're going to pick simpler tastes usually as their preferences and more complicated tastes, even from food within their own culture as disgusting. Sure. Um, but yeah, I wonder like to what extent it's that preservation like that wasn't as necessary in the modern times or maybe like in a post-war world, it wasn't as necessary it was than when their grandparents were growing up or something. But I mean, well, I clearly need to bring you back on and we have a whole conversation about disgust and the role that it plays. But, but for now, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been a really joyful conversation. I've enjoyed this very, very much. I really want to thank you for participating. Thank you, thank you so much for inviting me. I've enjoyed it myself. And I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. That was my conversation with Carolyn Korsmeyer. Links are in the show notes, including the picture of the cookbook her recipe comes from, and a modern English version of Hume's work on taste, so go check those out. If you'd like to subscribe to Thought About Food and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have thoughts about this episode or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 